So when Andy first asked me to speak on this parable, I immediately thought that I'd like to speak about the elder son because I am the elder child in my family and I don't cause my parents too much trouble. When I've heard about this parable in the past, it has traditionally been seen as Jesus teaching about a loving father, a rebellious younger son, and an obedient elder son. However, as we have just heard from the reading, the first few verses tell us that Jesus was talking to two very different groups of people. One was the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who represent the elder son, and the other group was the sinners and the tax collectors represented by the younger son. I'd never really thought about this aspect before. I think it is important to remember that the previous stories in this chapter are the story of the lost sheep and the lost coin. They are both about lostness. Therefore, if the story about the two sons is also about being lost and is addressed to two groups of people, it made me question which of the two sons Jesus is actually saying is lost. The whole teaching of the New Testament is about the fact that we are all lost and that relying upon the keeping of the law, which is what the Pharisees did, isn't the way to be saved. So I think that Jesus is saying that both the sons and both the groups they represent are lost. But what does being lost actually mean? Verse 13 says, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And verse 28 says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. We can see from these verses that both sons were separated from the presence of the father. This means that they were relying on their own efforts, something the Bible calls self-righteousness. All of this made me think, if Jesus is saying that both the sons are lost, broken and searching after something, what's the difference between the two of them? I think that the difference between the two sons being lost is where they are looking for their acceptance and their worth. The younger son looks for self-righteousness in the things of the world and doing things to please himself. The elder son is also seeking self-righteousness, but his is through relying on living a moral life and appearing to work hard to please his parents whilst primarily doing it for himself. So now I'm going to look specifically at the character of the younger son. When thinking about this, I've been challenged to see that I am, and many other Christians I see around me, are a lot more like the younger son than we perhaps wish and realise. In addition, now that I have an understanding of the lostness of the elder son, which Annie will go into, I realise we can all actually relate to characteristics of both the younger and the elder son, looking for righteousness in both moral and secular successes. So what is Jesus trying to help us understand about the younger son? Firstly, the younger son was more interested in what the father would give him than the father himself. He wanted the father for his inheritance and what he could get out of him, not for a relationship with the father. I find in myself that I seek God more when I want something, for example, security and hope when I'm finding the future daunting. 
Secondly, once he had the inheritance, he left the father and squandered it on wild living. In verse 30, the elder son accuses the younger son of spending his money on prostitutes. Lots of us, including me, switch off at this point because it doesn't seem relevant. However, in Jewish times, this was often a way of inferring idolatrous living. We know that the younger son had prioritised the money and what it gave him over a relationship with the father. Therefore, an idol is anything, and often things we think are good, that we look to for our significance and security above God the Father. It is anything we put in the place of God as first in our lives that controls what we do, how we spend our time, and what we truly value. What are the things that you are looking to for your significance and value in life that can be considered idols? It may be relationships, our job, car, house, or the clothes we wear, or how we look, or what others think about us. When I think about my own life, for example, I'm often tempted to idolise exam success and can feel that my worth is based on the results I achieve. Also, I'm often fearful of what others think about me because I can think that I get my significance from, what, from other people's opinions of me. Thirdly, when the younger son realised he was lost and couldn't find righteousness in all the things he did and achieved, he remembered and looked to the father. In verse 17 and 18, it says he realised his situation and was determined to acknowledge his sin. This is a great lesson to us, as the first step in experiencing the love of Father God is repenting of our sins. It might seem strange, but I realise that we need to repent not only of the bad things we do, but also the good things where we have been relying upon them for our significance. However, in verse 19, the younger son then says that he would ask his father to make him one of his hired hands. I think it is easy when we read this passage to miss what a big mistake this is. The son is saying here that he thinks he can earn his way out of his sin and therefore work hard to repair his relationship with his father. The irony is that he is trying to make himself like an elder son who we now know is equally as lost. Therefore, it is important to remember that repentance should never be followed by relying upon our own work and performance. The father's reaction to his son coming home shows us that God's love and acceptance is absolutely unconditional. He really wants us to understand that we can experience that same love and unconditional acceptance. If we think of the worst thoughts we've ever had, the most unkind things we've said or the worst things we've done, God knows about them and doesn't love us any less. The father interrupts his son before he even finishes apologising and accepts him back as his son without waiting for him to pay off his debt. For me, the lavishness and extravagance of the love the father shows to his son is a relief, as it means that nothing we do, no matter how lost we are, means that God loves us any less. Having said this, 
I do know that as Christians, we are called to live differently from those around us and put the needs of others first. But how can our lives be transformed without relying on our own work and effort? I think that it is only through a knowledge of the love and grace of our Father God that our behaviour can change. So above all, what I've learnt from doing this is, I th is that I am a lot more like the younger son than I first thought. Without realising it, I often think that I can earn my worth or significance through my own achievements, forgetting that this will always end in failure. So before I finish, I would like you to think, what are the things that you are relying on for your significance and righteousness? Do you truly know the grace of God the Father? I would challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the love of the Father for you so that you can truly believe in what Jesus has done for you and what he has now made you to be. As we read towards the end of the parable, the other son feels jealous towards his brother. He doesn't think that his father loves him as, as much as he does his brother. And that leads us to ask, has he ever really felt good enough? And has he ever really felt close to his father? We know he has worked hard for his father for years, but we can assume from his reaction that his motive through doing so from jealousy. He never felt high. His initial reaction was anger. Feelings sprouted from jealousy. He never felt he was good enough, and this confirms it for him. These feelings had spurred him on to do good and to obey his father, but he was doing good out of expectation and trying to prove that he was better than his brother. He never felt he was good enough in his own identity, so he pushed himself. He tried to be the best version of himself that he could be and aimed to be perfect, the perfect son. He took the path of self-salvation and self-reliance whilst his brother took the path of self-discovery and trying to find himself. Both brothers are just as lost, yet one's actions change dramatically. For the older son, because his actions aren't seemingly sinful, we don't see him as the lost son to begin with. Whereas his brother's actions are so dramatic and blatantly sinful and we're taken on that journey with him, it can often be the only sin that we see, that we see between both the brothers. Yet to me, the older son is even more lost because he doesn't know it. The older brother is so full of pride in being the better son that it gets in the way of his relationship with his father. And through that pride, he also blames his father for the wall that he himself has built. Yet at the same time as having all that pride, he is so insecure and doesn't feel affirmed or happy in himself. As he sees his father running towards his brother, to him he sees it as running away from him. But hopefully we can be assured that God would never run away from us. And after the father pleads with him, he shows that he loves him equally. He wants to share time with both of his brothers, with his sons. <laughs> One son needed celebrating, yet the other needed reassurance. And that is exactly what he got. The father never stopped loving the older son, and his love is consistent. Unlike the son who compares himself to his younger brother, the father didn't compare or favoritize his sons. The parable itself begins with, there was a man who had two sons. There wasn't a man with one son who ran away and then the other son. Both sons are completely equal to their father. And God sees us equally, no matter our actions. As our father, his characteristics, he is caring, generous, loving, affectionate, 
and patient. He doesn't give up and he doesn't stop waiting. And although it might seem like he reaches out to some people more than others, his love is completely equal. He just moves in each individual, in each individual differently. How the son's father spoke to him was different to how he spoke to his brother. God knows us inside out. He knows how we are best spoken to. For me, I relate to the older son because I spent a lot of my life doing what was expected of me and trying to be better than others. I found that I was never actually truly happy or secure in myself. And the longer I tried to be perfect, the more sinful I became in my motives. I became selfish and self-centered, just like the older son. Yet when I realized I could appreciate others' qualities without comparison, just like God the Father does, something in me changed. God took me out of that sin when I ran back to him. Although many of us might not see our actions as sinful and think we are good people and don't need his forgiveness, God isn't just looking at what we do. He looks at our intentions too. In fact, our intentions are more important to him. He knows we are going to sin. That is inevitable. What matters more to him is that we keep hold of him throughout that sin instead of relying on ourselves. To keep relying on between us, he has the opportunity to break down that wall of pride and being a good person between ourselves and God. And when we've built that wall, he can, the fullness of the relationship is diminished. And frankly, we're left with being just a good person. But relying on ourselves to be a good person cannot last. We do not have the strength to do that, and our Father knows that. And that is why he waits, because he loves us and knows that we need him to break down that wall. So what can the older son teach us? To give up our pride and be confident that God's fatherly love is enough for us to be secure in. We do not need to save ourselves. He has it covered as long as we ask. We have a father who loves us more than we could ever imagine and who is patient. He will wait. So I want to encourage you to have faith when you might feel jealous or angry at seeing God move in the people around you. He loves you just as much as he loves them. He knows us all better than we know ourselves. So don't try to work it all out before going to a relationship with him or in order to earn that relationship. He wants to have a relationship with you, every part of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the story starts with the father, and one of his sons comes up to him, and he asks his father for some money. And he doesn't just say, can I have some money, I want to go out with friends. He asks for his inheritance. He went up to his father and said, could you please hurry up and die? I'd like your money now. And everything of the culture at the time said the father should have turned around and told his son to go and wait a couple more years. And the father instead, he turns to his son and says, you know what, if that's your choice, fine, so be it. And so a couple of days later we read that by then the son has sold everything and his son leaves. But if we fast forward a bit, we see that the father is then looking for his son and he sees his son off in the distance. And this tells us a few things. First, he was looking for his son. That son was a part of him. He couldn't wait for his son to return. And he was waiting. 
he was looking out every single day for his son to come back. And this wasn't just looking out for the next couple of days because it'd be nice if his son decided he was wrong. This was a long time. We're told that not only has the son gone through all the wealth that he was given, there's an entire famine in this time. This son decided he was in need in this time. He then took up a job and then decided that he was better off at home and so traveled all the way back. That is an awful long time to be waiting for something. And yet we see that the father was always waiting and he was always looking for his son. And so when he sees him off in the distance, the father drops everything and he runs to his son. And before the son has even finished apologizing, the father says, no, you're my son. And he just reminds him that he can't change his standing with the father. Nothing the son does changes how much the father loves him. And the father probably knew that when his son came asking for money, that that money was not going to be spent on the best things. He wasn't going to see his son again and think, hmm, yeah, I could average son that money better. He was, that son was not going to spend the money on what the average father would want the average son to spend it on. And yet, the father doesn't care about that. He just sees his son. And so, as soon as he gets to his son, a party is thrown. And we don't hear that the father turned to the son and said, yeah, you've spent your money. Mm, well, you're going to earn this party. He doesn't turn to the son and say, yeah, but I'm kind of short on cash at the moment. Do you want to help out and do some work? And then, yeah, we'll sort something out. He forgets everything about money and just throws a party. And I don't know about you, but if I threw a party, I would want to stick it out to the end. But the father doesn't. As soon as he's at that party, he's looking for the other son. He's looking for both sons, not just the one that was lost, but the one that always belonged. And as soon as he's not there, once again, the father drops everything. And he goes to the other son, and he listens. And the other son is, we're told, the sort of teachers of the law. Um, and they were looking at the Old Testament. The Old Testament that says that they can earn good standing with God. An Old Testament that talks about material rewards. And so the other, in the story, the other son is talking about how he feels like he's earned the father's love. He feels like he's earned this party. This should be his party. And yet he's out in the field while the other one's having a party. And the father turns to him and starts pleading with him in verse 26. Now, I don't know about you. When was the last time your dad or someone you respected pleaded with you? And I was thinking about this. And I don't know what the other son was thinking, but I bet it felt pretty good to have his father pleading with him. And he could have turned around and gone, hmm, I've got leverage here. Here's a list of things I want. Hmm, you know that young goat? Now might be the time to ask. But he doesn't. He believes that he's in the right here. And so we're not told whether the older son comes in or not. We're not told what he says next. And I think it's interesting that Jesus leaves that out. It's almost like it didn't matter. Because whatever his choice was, it was his choice. The father didn't go up to him and say, right, in, now. He didn't go up to him and start telling him how he was wrong. He gave the choice to him. And that, I think, is so much about what God's love is about. God gives us the choice to do what we want. He loves us enough that he respects our choice. He doesn't need to approve of our choice. 
but it's our choice. And God's love is such that we can choose whatever we want. It won't change that we're his, his child. And that, I think, is my challenge today. Whichever son you identify with, whether you're the one that's a million miles away in another country, completely turned your back on God, whether you're coming home but haven't quite seen, your, seen the father yet, or whether you're the one that feels like you've always belonged, but you don't see what God's doing in your life. Either way, the father drops everything. He runs to you, and he wants to throw you a party. And this can be difficult for us. We might not have the best relationship with our dad. We might think that God being called a father is difficult because we've never really identified with our father. And yet, we're shown here that God is so much more than a father. He's the perfect father. He loves us no matter what, and he always wants us to come in and have a party with him. Thank you.